as time went on, this affair became more and more painful. And I knew myself, you know, after one year, after two years, after three years, that there was no rush to leave his wife. And, and nor was I asking him to do it. You know, I thought I was like full of integrity myself. Like, I'm never going to ask him to do that. That's something he's going to do if he wants to do it. I'm just going to hang around because mm. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss the moment that he says he's leaving her. I want to be first in line when that happens. Welcome to the Open Love Podcast. I'm Jen. And I'm Darius. We are a real life couple that believes that life is most fully lived with an open mind and an open heart. So there's definitely a whole bunch of things that we have learned over the years about love and relationships and a whole whack of things that we have no clue about. But that's what this podcast is. It's a curious, honest adventure into the unknown parts of love. And we are so excited for today's show because we have our first expert, our first guest on the Open Love Podcast. She's here to share her heart story and her journey to an open love. Let me tell you about our first guest, Deanna Petrini. She began as a dating coach 12 years ago. Now, an active relationship and leadership coach, and the founder of VentureBee, an organization that supports entrepreneurs through coaching, content, and community. Deanna helps her clients to connect to their deepest desires, their resourcefulness, and vulnerability so that they can live at full choice. Deanna Petrini, welcome to the Open Love Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Really excited to be here. We're pumped. I'm pumped. Uh, Me too. Me too. (laughs) So what is it like telling people you are a dating coach? What's the most popular response to that? What's a dating coach? Hmm. And then you would say what? I would say I help people find love. And so, do you get a different response from men versus women? Usually. I mean, it really depends where the person is. You know, doing any kind of coaching work, when you tell somebody that you do that, it immediately brings up in them all of these very vulnerable internal thoughts that they want very much to keep to themselves. And so they get a little bit, um, I guess, defensive right away. Mm. Yeah, I can. I can and, that can. and that can show up in a lot of different ways. And you know, so I'll say, I'm a dating coach. And if someone's single, they'll be like, oh, sounds, sounds serious. So well, could, why would someone need a dating coach? Yeah. They get they get a little nervous. Apprehensive. I right. think that's the word I was looking Cuz n- no one wants to admit that they suck at dating. <laughs> kind of, that's right? That's true, right? Yeah, it's like I don't need a personal trainer. I can I can do these things on my own. Right. 
Yeah. Right. Or they're afraid that if they say, yeah, you know, dating's tough, that immediately they're at the res- on the receiving end of a sales pitch. Right. Oh, okay. And so practically speaking, for someone that's completely new to the concept of a dating coach, can you just give us a little summary of like how you help people? Well, I'll say this. Most people think that a dating coach spends time showing them how to create uh, a a dating profile or what site they need to be on or they even help them with the introductions directly and tell them where to go or how to dress. And I may do that and may do some of that, but really most of the work is internal, Mm. which is what people initially don't want the coaching to be about and then ultimately understand that is the only, that's the only discussion to have. Mm. Got it. So what what drove you to be excited about having these internal discussions around dating and love? Um, well, my mother's a matchmaker. Oh, interesting. I had no so, idea. Yeah, so I'm a Russian Jew, or I'm an Italian Russian Jew, uh, but my mom's a Russian Jew, and, you know, Jews are good with matchmaking always have been you know there are three jews on the planet so if you want to meet another jew uh you know you're likely going to need a little assistance because you already know the three jews that are in your neighborhood so you might (laughs) you're you're okay with asking for help in that area and really you don't you you just consider it resourcefulness Mm. and just good practice so there's there's a lot less stigma around that, especially if we go back, you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago when when I when my mother started doing this and we were in this space. Now, now it has a lot less stigma altogether. So I was single and in my 20s and my mother was um conducting introductions and she wanted to do that for me which is a humongous mistake I mean that is not that is a major conflict of interest I feel <laughs> like do not I feel like that's some mother. people's nightmares having their yeah. mom setting them up yeah yeah <laughs> yeah oh god oh god it was brutal anyway so she set me up it was not good uh, and then I said, but I was trying to be peppy and open to it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm good with it. I'm good with it. It's just you. Do you know another matchmaker? And she sent me to another matchmaker. And that matchmaker set me up on two of like the worst dates I've ever been on. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? Like I just slammed my hand on the table and I said, matchmaking, the matchmaking industry needs to be reformed. And I'm the one to do it. I'm going to reform the matchmaking industry. So I decided to become a matchmaker too. And then about five minutes into it, I realized, nope, this industry can't be reformed. Abort, abort, abort. Um, And what I realized really quickly was the problem isn't 
with introductions. It's not like people can't find somebody who is single to go on a date with. And even back then, there was J-Date and, and, and there were dating sites. And there is no matchmaker who has a roster of people nearly as large as what the dating sites even back then had. And when I set people up on a date or when a matchmaker sets two people up on a date, they can get everything right on paper, but you can't control people's emotions. And, and so I understood that it was useful. It, It was just a useless endeavor. What really we needed to talk about what, was what is it that is stopping you internally from being open to love? Because that's really what it was. The expectations were all over the place and people weren't open to the experience of meeting someone new. You know, Mm. they came in with all of their baggage. They projected all of their bullshit on the new person. And they're like, I know in the first two seconds, that person's not for me. Oh, yeah. I got lots oh, yeah, of friends no, like that for you. Yeah, no one's for you, you know, or I have a certain type or I have this. And it's all these stories that that we create and that we get so attached to that prevents us from seeing another human being as three dimensional so- and being open to something happening between them. So that's the work that I started focusing on. I like that a lot. It's like if you don't do the deeper heart work, the inside work, the person that gets matched up on the outside is never going to find that that soulful love. So you get past that mask that they show, it sounds like, and help them work on the inside stuff so they can match up in a much deeper way. And, and you know, yes, and... What I discovered and learned a lot along the way and keep learning is, and this is going to sound so cliche, but you just discover, I just discovered that people didn't love themselves. And so when you don't love yourself, who else is going to love you? And anyone that's interested in you, there has to be something wrong with them because you're unlovable. And these are the core beliefs that you have. And so you can't be with anyone. You know, I think I we talked before and I shared this Groucho Marx quote with you. And it goes, uh, I would never want to be a member of a club that would... Ha- I would never want to be a part of a club that would have me as its member. <laughs> and that is so much... Self-deprecating for sure. Yeah, and that is so much how so many people feel when they're dating. It's like, oh, you want to date me? Well, I wouldn't want to date someone that wants to date me. So, no. (laughs) I want to date the asshole that would never date me. Interesting. That's the guy I want. So, Because he knows. I want to ask you a question because we did a photo shoot recently, you and I. And I shared with you this project, this open love project. And you instantly were like excited by it. And you said, you should have me on the podcast. And as we dove deeper... You're like, oh, I've got the perfect open love story for you. And you began to share a very personal, very real story about your life and your heart. And uh, 
I would love to hear more about that story. Oh, you want to hear the juicy story about me being a Give mistress. Give me the juice that, oh, being a you mistress. You want the good stuff. The good, bring the good stuff. Right. Yeah, because that's a great story, right? Well, that, that's got suspense. It's got <laughs> drama. It's Should got I get popcorn? Pain. T- t- tell <laughs> us about how it started. Um, well, I was in my 20s. And, uh, you know. I was happy. I was happy and gorgeous and uh, full of life and living life. And I used to go uh, out to bars and, and uh, you know, listen to live music and dance and, and drink and smoke. God, I love smoking. I love smoking cigarettes. I did that for 19 years. Yeah, and smoke cigarettes and dance and be with my girlfriends and, you know, have fun. And so one night of doing that, there was a band playing. And this guy, the lead singer in the band, and and it was a disco band, and he had, like, this Afro wig on, and he had these huge glasses that covered the rest of his face. You couldn't see who he was, and his out his costume was totally, you know, over the top disco. And and every time he he uh, they played a a new song, he would say, "This one's for the ladies." <laughs> he said that <laughs> for every song. <laughs> and uh, at one point, you know, I was having a lot of fun dancing with my girlfriends and then at some point he found me in the crowd and he pointed to me and he wanted me to come up to him and I you know and I just gave him like a look and shook my hand I said I don't think so I'm not that kind of girl I don't come when I'm beckoned you don't you can't just call me up so you know I was very coquettish about it and he kept pointing to me and kept wanting me to come up on stage. But I saw what he kept doing to any woman that got close to him. I mean, he was so over the top, right? Like hiding, hiding under that Afro, like any woman that would come near him, he would just like slip his hand under her shirt and just very openly publicly as part of the gig, you know, would just cup her breast. <laughs> like you Oh boy. Okay. And this is the 90s, okay? This is long before Me Too. This is still when that was cute, acceptable, and funny. But not for me. And the girls that would get cups would be like, I can't believe he did that. Here's my other boob right there. (laughs) And so tell us, tell us where, where, (laughs) where did this disco? singing groping yeah where did this go yeah so you know i was intrigued right he had this really big presence so finally at the end of the night when they had his final song he was grabbing all the women and all the men and putting them on stage and my girlfriend's like just go just go so i went and i got up on stage and it was the last song and i was dancing and he turned to me and he said you're beautiful and i said thanks and then we just uh started talking and he said his name was Kevin, which I don't mind telling you because that wasn't his name. Okay. Um, and then we ended up having a one night stand. 
and it was very exciting and fun. Okay. And, uh, but at the end of that one night stand, he told me he was married. I said, you mean like you walked down an aisle with a woman and said, I do, I do. And, and that's your wife kind of Mary. He said, yes. And he has a son and I'm like, well, then why would you do this? Hmm. And he said, oh, we're separated. And I thought that it sounded fishy to me. And I'm like, well, that was that. Goodbye. And Kevin, as he said his name was, said, give me your number. And I said, I don't want to give you my number. He said, give it to me, give it to me. And so I, I did. And then he called me. And then he said his name was David. And I met up with David and he you know, assured me they were separated. And then we had a another a two night stand. And then we met again and he said his name was Peter. <laughs> Are you for stand. real? I'm for real. And I knew and I and I was enjoying it. I didn't even ask him his name. I just let him give me a new name every time. So walk us. We, so walk us in that moment. You're you're twenty something. You're in this love affair, this lustful love affair with this Kevin, this Peter, this Jimmy, whatever his name keeps changing to. Mm-hmm. And you know that he's married and has a kid. And what are you thinking? What is your rationale at that time? Well, at this point, I'm like he's separated. He told me the whole story of how he got separated and what was happening, and that he wasn't staying there, and he only went to the house once a week. And his father was dying, and then his father did die. And I bought that story. I bought that story, and I wasn't invested, but I was very excited. You know, this was really exciting. We were. I mean, we were having these one-night stands, like, outside, on the beach, under docks, in the bleachers. Just, it was very, very exciting. And I had never met anybody like that in my life, and I had never had experiences like that in my life. And I started falling for him very hard and very quickly. And then he told me, that he got back together with his wife. And I said, well, in that case, we can't continue this way. But, but, and this is, you know, the naivete of a young woman. I thought, but I've never met someone like you, and I feel like it would be so sad if we just never spoke again. Maybe we should just be friends. And he agreed. And we did that for five months. For five months, we would meet periodically as friends, but with major sexual tension. Um, And then one day he said, I'm not meeting you again unless I'm fucking you. Oh, wow. And and what was your response to that? I said, I don't think that's a good idea. And then he said, okay, I got to go. And then I immediately called him back and I said, here's the thing. Of course, I want to do this with you, but I'm pretty sure I'm in love with you. 
And then he told me he loved me too. And then we started a full on three year affair. And what's the transition from like going from having one night stands to it being a full on affair? What's the difference? I started getting invested. Uh, I was in love with him. You were actually in a relationship, sort of. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I was. And so his wife still has no clue. You know, I'd like to think that she did have a clue. We know these as women. We know these things, right? It's like you can smell it, or you you Mm -hmm. you sense it. Oh yeah. So how did you navigate the ethics of that? That there is a family, and there is us. Well, initially, I ignored it. That was that was the best way to start off. I was much more focused on the fact that we had found love with each mm-hmm. other. Yeah. And that we were, you know, just two lovers trying to figure out what to do with this. Did you have this, did you have this sense of like, well, you know, like someday we'll be together or like we're working towards something like eventually he'll leave his partner or whatever. That started, that started creeping up. And I had hope that it would go there. You know, like so many mistresses that I've spoken to and that I've coached over the time, there's always the hope and desire that if the love is strong enough, it's going to conquer all. Why do you think Um, so many women find themselves in these positions? So here's what's so interesting about this. Men who do this Mm -hmm. are very charismatic. I mean, men who do this successfully, because there are a lot of men who would gladly cheat on their wives or have affairs, but they're not attracting enough women with which to do it. But these men who are successful about it are very successful with it are very charismatic. They're gregarious. I mean, this guy was a musician, right? He was on stage. He knew how to be charming. Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, and you and the thing about uh, men who are charismatic like that is that they have this air of taking charge. Mm. And what is attractive? What is attraction? If you boil down what men think is attractive and what women think is attractive, men like symmetry. And they like looking at a woman that looks like she can bear children. She is healthy and she can bear him healthy children. And this is the lizard animal brain that makes him attracted to a woman, okay? So we make 
ourselves look full of fucking collagen, right? We plump up our lips, we plump up everything, we our hips, our ass, our tits, everything so that we look the part. What do women want when they're attracted to the, a man? We want someone who's going to save us from a fire. He is just going to swoop in and pull us out of that fire and keep us safe and protect us. And there are lots of men ways that in which men can do that, right? I mean, they could look really strong or they can have deep pockets or they can just say with authority that they can do all of those things and they would do all of those things. And that, and the latter is what Bill was. And every time I say his name, I'm going to choose a different name in honor so yeah so jimmy was really good at making me believe that he was going to make me safe but the truth of the matter is men who will cheat on their wives for a very long time and have these long affairs it's not because they're courageous it's not because they would save you from a burning fire the truth is that they are humongous cowards they are people who can't be with their own truths. They can't be in integrity with what they actually want. And mm. what they actually want, just spoiler alert, is never the mistress. <laughs> uh, but they can't even identify or name it. So, so they know, don't actually would, know what they want? They're just chasing something? They're avoiding something. Mm. So, so I can see that there was dishonesty with his wife, but I don't actually think I heard a moment with you where he was being dishonest with you. And I just wanted to see if there were there any points where it was like, no, that was a lie. He wasn't being truthful with me. I'm just trying to figure out how to answer this question. The dishonesty, the initial dishonesty came with omission, came through omission, because like anyone who is clear that they're never going to fully give themselves over to someone else, that is something that they just keep to themselves, because saying it out loud is going to cost you. You know, if he had ever come to me and said, this will never go anywhere, you need to understand, like, where I'm going to screw you when I have time and and I have the opportunity, but I'm, I'm not interested in anything more than that ever, uh, that would really kill the buzz, mm. <laughs> the buzz that he really enjoyed. So he wasn't ever going to say those words that way to me and so and, was there a point where the the spell wore off and you were able to see the relationship differently yeah we did that lots of times I mean we it, it I did that lots of times because as time went on, this affair became more and more painful 
And I knew myself, you know, after one year, after two years, after three years, that there was no rush to leave his wife. And, and nor was I asking him to do it. You know, I thought I was like full of integrity myself. Like, I'm never going to ask him to do that. That's something he's going to do if he wants to do it. I'm just going to hang around because mm. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss the moment that he says he's leaving her. I want to be first in line when that happens. Um, and it was very painful. So I kept, we kept, I kept breaking up. And then finally I did. I said, you know, whatever it is that's going on between you and your wife is never going to be resolved while I'm in the picture. And if you can't make that choice, then that choice needs to be made for us. And I got to go because, you know, I got to tell you that I've always held hope that we could be real. And so then we broke up for two years until he came knocking on my door two years later to let me know he left his wife. And then we moved in together and we tried to do it totally above board, legit for two years. Wow. At least I did. Hmm. He was, of course, cheating on me during that time. Oh, wow. I was going to ask, what would it have felt like if you found out there was a second mistress? Oh, there was a second and a third and a fourth. I mean, he's, you know, he's an avoider. He's a narcissist. So how did that feel for you when you knew that there was a second and a third mistress as well? Oh, God. (laughs) You know, there are two things that I can tell you. One is what I felt the moment I discovered it. I mean, my entire body went cold. I I found emails and he wasn't home. And, uh, and I cover, I had to cover myself with like a million blankets because I was shaking so uncontrollably Hmm. from reading these things. But on the other hand, in hindsight, you know, I wasn't really that surprised. Here's the thing. Okay. And, And this is the, this is the lesson to the mistress. This is the cost of being a mistress. The mistress is a woman who waits. She's a woman who is waiting her turn to be chosen. And the man, or, and I mean, this could work with other genders too, like with like reversed gender roles. But generally speaking, this is how it goes. She's waiting. And the man tells her she has to wait and that when the time comes, it'll all be worth it. Mm. But what happens is this. You become the waiter. And instead of more time passes, the more the man feels like, oh, my God, time is running out. I better make the move soon. The opposite occurs. He's like, she's good at waiting. She can just keep waiting. She waits. 
and you, he sees you, he doesn't see you as the woman he needs to rush for. He sees you as the woman who waits. And so even when Daryl <laughs> came back to me, he never felt like he needed to actually do anything for me. And by the way, let me also make this clear. He didn't come back to me. He didn't, we weren't separated for these two years and he was like, I can't wait to leave, you know, my wife Jane so that I can be with Deanna. And that as soon as he, you know, to call me and say, get prepared because we started having the conversation. It's as soon as he left Jane, he was like, oh God, now where am I going to go? Oh, there's a waiter. She's waiting. So how did you, (laughs) how do you then go from being this woman who's just waiting for her turn to being a woman who's like, if you want me, choose me, have me. How do I go from being the woman that I used to be in that relationship to the woman that I am now? Yeah. Like how did you stop just waiting? Oh, that's, easy I got dumped mm. I, I and I wasn't just the waiter I was the waiter and the tolerator uh. because when I found out that he had been unfaithful to me I still didn't leave I just said please don't do that again he goes sorry 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 I'll never do that again I said cool and then he did it again and then he ended up leaving me for another woman he's the kind of person and, and this kind of person they're there's so many of them that it's a real generalization because a person like that can't be alone. Right. So he always has somebody in the background ready to go. I was once the person in the background. Then I became the person in the foreground and being the person in the foreground, he needed to have somebody in the background Mm. and there's always an overlap. So when he left me, he was already with somebody else. He never had to uh, be alone. And he, when he dumped me, and it was very unceremonious, I'll tell you that, I hit a major rock bottom. Hmm. Major rock bottom to the point where I wasn't suicidal because I would never, I, I, I just would never take my own life. But I can tell you with, I can tell you with complete certainty that if death came to me at that time, I was going to welcome it because Mm. I felt that I had understood that my way of thinking was broken, that I didn't know how to navigate the world and that life and that the damage that I had done was so great that I thought it was irreparable. Mm. I didn't know how to have self-respect. I didn't know how to have an identity anymore because what I had become was the person who kept stripping more and more of the identity in order to keep this relationship that I had invested so much in. You know the, you know the expression, throwing uh, good money after bad? Mm-hmm. You just, you've invested so much that you just keep going. Like, this can't fail. This has to succeed otherwise everything that i have stood for was for naught yeah 
Um, and then I had found myself alone. And I thought, how did I get here? I thought I had done absolutely everything in order to prevent getting here. That's the only thing that I had put my attention to. And yet I found myself alone. So I thought, I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know how to get my brain out of this, my mind out of this. But, but somehow you did. I'm really curious. Like we've got a couple minutes left in the podcast and I want, I know this, this story will resonate with our audience. I know in my own personal life, there's lots of people who can connect to it and I can't even connect to it in different ways, but I want us to just, uh, if you can share a little bit about how you hit that rock bottom and you've, you feel very different than that version of you that you're telling us about what lessons, what insights can you share with maybe somebody else who can relate to your story? Yeah. So the beauty is this. When you hit rock bottom, there's only one way to go, and that's up. And when I hit rock bottom, by the way, I had been a victim. Okay? This is the lesson. Lesson is the waiter and the tolerator is the victim. It is a person who is not at choice. I had never considered being at choice. I didn't even know there was such a thing. I didn't know I was a victim. I just thought all of this is happening to me. Woe was me. Uh, what I learned, and by the way, as soon as I hit rock bottom, the first thing I did was go to therapy, and I went every single week for two years. Uh, that was that's a hundred hours of therapy in two years, um, and coaching. And then I never stopped. You know, it's been uh, 11 or 12 years since then, and I haven't stopped the personal growth because I have decided to be at choice. So to anyone who's listening who is in a similar situation and they don't know how to get their mind straight to be choosing for themselves and to go after a life of their own purpose and find their own identity, it's not a job that you can do on your own. Self-mastery cannot be done by yourself. Otherwise, you're like Smeagol in the catacombs and you find a piece of turd in the caves and you're like, the precious. <laughs> right? You need somebody there to help you. We are a social animal and you need somebody there to help with balance and perspective and say, no, no, that, that doesn't make any sense. They're not making you. We need support. You need to ask for help. You need to go find it. You need to go pay for it because unlike a friend a coach or a therapist is a gift all mm. they want their only personal purpose is payment which is wonderful you give them a hundred dollars and now they are dedicated to you and your growth so i think my answer here is don't try and go it alone mm. we need others and the and the disease of the mistress and is that it's so much in secrecy yeah that's what kept coming up for me when i'm hearing you say this it's like there's something about having the accountability of a therapist or a coach where you can't hide from your own shit <laughs> yeah and and it's not about like you know the blame like if you say no. it out loud you're gonna know you're the one that's making the mistake it's it isn't a shameful experience. It's actually the opposite. It's super fucking empowering. Um, and it's you got to be vulnerable. You got to be ready to say the things, say say it all. Share the fears. Share the desires. 
and Deanna, so after a hundred hours of therapy and all the other work that you've done on yourself, that part of you that, um, was excited, that was charmed by this, this man and the tabooness and the, you know, excitement of doing all sorts of things together all over the city. Is that part forever gone when you come across another person like that? Or is it still there and you just have different tools that you approach it with? What a good fucking question. So I will bring it back to this. What is attractive to a woman in the lizard brain is a man who is going to save her from a fire. And what I learned was a narcissist who is going to cheat on his wife is not is a is a coward and not courageous and never going to save me from a fire. So that made him less attractive. But a good man who does what he says he's going to do, that's fucking sexy and exciting. And I connect to that. I know how to connect to the man who pays his bills. <laughs> on a fucking vis- visceral and sexual way. You know, I create that excitement with my husband, who is the real fucking create. That man will put everything aside to save us from a fire. And because of that, he gets fucked regularly. Ah! With- <laughs> <laughs> on the bleachers too wherever you know he, <laughs> it takes a lot it takes a lot of design to do it on the bleachers but we have dates in hotels oh that's Big, fun yes it is i love yes, that it is. we make fun yeah that's great. I think that's a that's a really great place for us to to end the podcast with uh that excitement and um thank you for going into these conversations that are conversations that people keep to themselves uh and lots of times conversations that you hide become shameful and I think there's there's power here and there's lesson here and there's definitely love here. So thank you for opening your heart and sharing with us today, Deanna. Thank you so much, Darius and Jen. And, you know, I would just like to say that I still do this work with both men and women who are looking for love or who are having difficulty with love. And so, um, you know, I'm available if anybody wants to talk. Great. We're going to put your your contact information in the description of this podcast. Um, so if anyone's out there and you're resonating with Deanna's story and her energy, she is not coaching from a place of academia alone. It's obvious here that she's coaching from a grounded, heart-centered place of lived it, real life experience. And so thank you for sharing that real story and that real experience with us today. Thank you so much. Guys, that's been episode 005. I'm pretty sure I have that number right of the Open Love Podcast. Thank you guys all for listening and we will see you next week. See you next time.